Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower for, or for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word, as we examine what you have superintended by your spirit in this letter to the Hebrews, this what was likely a sermon, Father, you superintended not only to the Hebrews of the first century, but to your church in all ages. We pray that your spirit would work to take your word and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. That we would see him, namely Jesus, who's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So we pray that you would cause us to trust more in him, to give thanks to him. Father, we pray that we would see in Christ your great love for us and your great grace toward us that we would trust you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, condescended to us and was born of the Virgin Mary, born as a man. That's why we celebrate Christmas every year. In fact, that's why we celebrate the whole of the Christian calendar, if you will, all of our Christian life. We are celebrating each Christmas the incarnation of the Son of God, the Son of God taking on humanity for us and for our salvation. So we're celebrating every Christmas and really every Sunday. It's more, it's more than just the incarnation, but the incarnation is the beginning of that great work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on our behalf. Incarnate is the incarnation of him is means he's the taking on of flesh. He has taken on humanity. We we celebrate that every year. So what do we learn then from the incarnation of the Son of God? What do we learn from this? The fact the Son of God took humanity to himself for us and our salvation. What do we learn? Well, there are many lessons that we gather from it, but I want to provide two real simple answers this morning. Just two this morning of the many we could look at. So here's what they are, and and this is generally the outline of the sermon. One, here's the first lesson we learned. The Father in love sent his Son for you. The Father in love sent his Son for you. In other words, it was the Father's loving kindness and care for us that caused him to send the Son. 
And the second lesson we're going to look at this morning is that the Son graciously purchased salvation for you. It was the Son's gracious and merciful condescension as man and his obedience even to the point of death on a cross that saves you. But before I look at these two answers, these two lessons really, I want to look at the preface at the preface of this discussion, to how this discussion is introduced. So look at Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In other words, Hebrews returns us again to a comparison between the angels and the Son. If you look at verse 13 of chapter 1, and to which of the angels has he ever said? If you look up to verse 5 of chapter 1, for to which of the angels did God ever say? If you look to verse 4 of chapter 1, having become, the speaking of the Son, having become as much superior to angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than theirs, there is a direct comparison that is happening in this text between the Son of God and angels. And they're saying the Son is superior in every way to the angels. Hebrews has been showing us the superiority of the Son above the angels. Listen, the angels pointed forward to the Son. They were, in the Old Testament, um, in, in a sense, mediating the revelation of God to man. How do, how do I know that? They, for example, delivered the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. We learn that in Galatians 3. Uh, we, learn, we learn that in Hebrews 2, if you look just above, in the verses just above. The angels delivered that. Look up at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape or if we neglect such a great salvation? That message that proved reliable is the message we call the Mosaic Covenant. That message that came to Moses at Mount Sinai. Now Jason has dealt with that extensively, so I won't spend time there. Here's the point. This comparison between the Son and the angels is continuing. The author hasn't let it go yet. He doesn't want to let the comparison go yet. So he continues the comparison by saying that God did not subject the world. Look at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world, if you will, about which we are speaking. God did not subject the world to come. The world about which we are presently speaking. He did not subject that world to angels. So here's a question. What's the world to come? What's the world about which we are presently speaking? Now this is the thing that's a little bit difficult grammatically for you. The world to come, here stated like we're talking about some future world. But the author is talking about that future world, the world to come, from the perspective of the Old Testament. It's a coming new creation promised in the Old Testament. Thus, it, from the perspective of Old Testament saints, of those reading the Old Testament, it is the world to come. That's what they're looking forward to. That's why he'll then ground this in Psalm 8. 
That's why you can find this kind of language, incidentally, in Isaiah. They're looking forward to this world to come, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of the Messiah or the Christ. They're looking forward to that world to come, this new creation, this new heavens and new earth. They're looking forward to it. But that world to come has now arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, has ushered in that new creation the Old Testament anticipated, and he, Jesus, is the one to whom the new creation has been subjected. It's under his feet, not the feet of the angels. That's why we can hear some, someone like Paul say, Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And to whom did God subject the world to come? He subjected it to Jesus. Look at verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, who are we talking about? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, who's him? He left nothing outside of his control. Who's his, right? Control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, what he's saying is, though he presently has everything subjected to him, we don't see it yet. It's spiritually a reality. It's real, but it's not yet physically a reality because Christ has not yet returned to consummate the kingdom. It's begun, it's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been consummated. So look what he goes on to say. But we see him, verse 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He subjected it all to Jesus. Jesus, we're told in chapter 1, when we open it up, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom, the Son, he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who told us all authority in heaven and earth, has been given to me. The whole Old Testament people lived in the hope of the coming kingdom of God. They knew the Old Testament, or they, if you will, the old creation, sorry, was fallen. They knew that. It, they knew it was under the curse of sin and death. It was under the power of Satan. So they looked forward to the world to come, to the new creation. And Hebrews is saying that that new creation, that world to come, is here, and it's in subjection to Christ the Son. Now, we don't fully see it yet. We will when he returns. But it's already begun. He brought the salvation already that we're longing for, and he is the Lord of that salvation. That's why if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's why when you trust in him, you presently have eternal life. You don't get eternal life once you die. You have it the moment you trust in him. You've been born again because a new creation has come. Now, to drive this point home, we begin a meditation upon the Son in the Incarnation. And the author of Hebrews is keen to demonstrate that the Son is the Savior and Lord of the new creation, and thus he has the supremacy. So as we look at his argument, we're going to see these two answers to the question, why the Incarnation? Why the Incarnation? Well, first, the Incarnation happened because the Father in love sent his son for you. Please hear that. 
The Father in love sent his Son for you. The cause of the Father sending his Son is his love for you. The sending of the Son is the greatest evidence of the Father's love for you. Look at Hebrews 2 and verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. Now, that's an interesting way to introduce the Psalm of David. It's been testified somewhere. Now, he's speaking to a group of Hebrews who would have known Psalm 8. They would have known. They sang it. We don't think about the Psalms, unfortunately, enough as a hymn book, if you will, for the church. But they did. They sang all 150 songs in corporate worship. They were quite familiar with Psalm 8. So when he says, it's been testified somewhere, they all know that's the Psalm of David when, they get, when he starts to quote it. That's from Psalm 8. Likely, the author here, whom I think is most likely Paul, is, is saying to you, um, the Davidic authorship isn't as important right now as knowing that, that God witnessed through this psalmist, this truth. It's been testified somewhere. Now look what it goes on to say. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. The author is demonstrating that Jesus is the one to whom the new creation has been subjected. In fact, all things are in subjection to him. And the cause of this work is the Father's love for us. Now I said the author's quoting from Psalm 8, so let's look at Psalm 8. Keep your hand in Hebrews 2 and turn to Psalm 8. I think it's important that we consider the psalm from which this author is quoting because it's important to his argument that he's making about the incarnation of the Son and his work. Psalm 8, to the choir master according to the Getith, a psalm of David. Now notice verse 1. O Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, that is um, the Hebrew name for God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, I want you to pay attention. Verse 1, he's talking about the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, look down to verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, you have an inclusio. I've taught you guys what that is before. It's a way of bracketing a whole passage, like bookends on the passage, that are telling you everything in between here has something to do with this theme that's bracketing it. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Are you getting the theme? 
The Lord's name is majestic in all the earth. He is the Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the beginning and the end, the self-sufficient one, the holy and glorious one, the majestic one. There is no other. God is infinitely great. He is always, everywhere, present. He could create, listen to this, he could create an infinite number of galaxies and be ever-present in them all. Now, I don't mean, please don't misunderstand, I don't mean that God is so big that he's bigger than the creation. There's this big blob called God that's bigger than the creation. That isn't the point. Okay? So he could just extend himself to more and more creational material as he makes it. He could just extend himself out and be present. That's not what I'm saying. He's a different kind of being altogether. He is spirit. He does not have parts. What I mean is God is infinite in being. So he is everywhere present. He is so infinite in his being that we can't even conceive of him other than just affirm a negative. We're affirming a negative. You follow that? Here's the negative. He is infinite in his being. What is that? In He is not finite in his being. That's, that's what we can say about his, if you will, his what we call his omnipresence. He's also infinitely powerful. He's the God who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He is the God who is sustaining all things by the word of his power. The sun came up this morning because he called it forth. You have life and breath because he created you and sustains you. He created and governs the whole of creation. And he does not tire or sweat under the load or grow exhausted. He's never too busy for any of his creation. He doesn't exhaust even a hint of his inexhaustible power. Further, he is infinitely Wise. He created everything we see in a manner that his creation is governed through largely secondary causes. What do I mean by that? I want you to think of his glorious wisdom. What I mean by that is he created man and breathed life into him, but he did so by providing us the biological systems and the environment necessary to continue living. Our blood pumps through our bodies due to the circulatory system God gave us. This was the wise creation of God. And we still can't fully wrap our minds, we don't even come close to wrapping our minds, around something like how the human body works. Think of it. The greatest minds in humanity have been contemplating how our bodies and minds work for thousands of years, and yet we still don't know much. I can't tell you how many times I'm told what the latest health thing is you're supposed to do. Don't eat eggs, they're bad. Eat eggs, they're good. What? What is it? I'm not sure. Scientists have declared this is true. Wait, scientists have changed their mind. This is not true. We were wrong. Eat lots of carbs and don't eat very much fat. Everybody's getting fatter. Don't eat any carbs. Eat lots of fat. What, what is it? 
Look, I don't know how many times I've sat in the doctor's office or the hospital and heard the doctor say, we just don't know what's wrong with you. And we just can't do anything about it. Folks, God knows. It's no mystery to him. And it's no expenditure of his effort for him to know. He knows what he designed, and he has no questions about it. When he willed it, it came to be. He he doesn't have to take time to think about things. God doesn't have to contemplate. He knows. He knows it. He knows it exhaustively without the least bit of strain in his great wisdom. Further, God has no need for us. He doesn't have any need for anything else in all creation. God is. Now, please understand this. God, do the math. God minus the creation, still God. He isn't less God if there's no creation. God plus the creation, still God. He isn't more God because there's a creation. He is. We don't add to him. We don't take from him. We don't change him. We don't affect him. He is. He is all say. In other words, he is of himself. He is in need of nothing. He is self-sufficient. And he is good. God is good. He didn't create us because he needed us. In his divine goodness, out of his pure benevolence, he created us and everything. And thus his name is majestic in all the earth. Thus the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above his handiwork. His glory is above the heavens. Now in light of that, look at what he says in verse 3. When I look of Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Think of what David's saying here. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? See, here's the question. Look at who God is and what God is capable of and ask, why is he mindful of me? Why does he care about me? The God who set the stars in the heavens is mindful of you. Do you hear that, Christian? You're the dust of the earth. And yet God cares for you. He thinks of you. How could that be? How could that be? How could the God who governs the rotation of the planets be thinking of me? How can the God who says to the seas, thus far you shall go and no further, who sets their boundaries, be mindful of me? Listen, it's not because I or you are so great. That's not the point of the psalmist. He's not coming here saying, how majestic is the Lord in all the earth, and I'm pretty majestic too, he's mindful of me. That's not his point. 
point is, look at who the Lord is. I look at his work in creation, and I think, how could he even consider me? I'm just dust that God formed into man and breathed life into. In one sense, the worm is my brother. And your humble estate is not found merely in the fact that you're dust. I mean, the fact that we are dust ought to humble us. But our humble estate does not reside merely in the fact that we're dust, but that we are rebellious dust. We have arrogantly shaken our fist at our creator and declared that we know better. We've transgressed his laws as if our ways are better than his. Think of the sheer arrogance and folly and insanity of sin. You've created everything, but I know better than you. You sustain everything, but I know better than you. I don't need to listen to you. I'm just the dust of the earth. I came from the dust, and I shall return to the dust. And the worm who is my brother by creation, in the sense that he is from the ground, will soon consume me. And I think that I can rebel against you and tell you how things ought to be. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We're like pots looking up to the potter and objecting to the way he's created us and governing us. It is our arrogance that is the ultimate insanity of man. And yet, please hear this, and yet he cares for us. And yet he cares for us. Herein and here alone, man is glorious above all creation. You hear that? He's mindful of you because he chose to be mindful of you. He's not mindful of you. You're not glorious above all creation in and of yourself. You're glorious above all creation as a human being because God has set his affection upon you above all creation. He has set his free, unmerited, overflowing, loving kindness upon you. Now now look at what he says in verse 5 of Psalm 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Now this was intended to be sung, if you will, as an echo of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates man as the glory of his creation, and he says to man, he, as he blesses him, God blessed them, and God said to me, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Put it all under your feet. And he gave man dominion over all the earth. But Adam sinned. It should be said about all of us, but we sinned. And the psalmist knows, and the author of Hebrews knows, that while this echoes Genesis 1, and ought to have been true about Adam and all man. Due to our sin and rebellion, it is not true of us apart from Christ. What the author of Hebrews was telling us is this psalm of David was always singing preeminently 
about Jesus. Always. Jesus actually quotes verse 2 of Psalm 8 in Matthew. But the author of Hebrews quotes this psalm and says it's about Jesus. So look back at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8, the second part of verse 8. Hebrews 2, the second part of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, we see Jesus, who's going to say that, namely, Jesus. He was the one who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That is speaking about his incarnation. He's humbling himself and taking on the form of the servant of man. And being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. We have seen Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. In other words, he went to the cross. He was resurrected. He ascended to the right hand of God. He was coronated as king. And he poured out the Holy Spirit as the king giving gifts to his subjects. Who was the Father ultimately mindful of? Who was made a little lower, or excuse me, for a little while was made lower than the angels? Who was crowned with glory and honor? To whom has everything been placed in subjection under his feet? Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, the mediator, the second Adam. This is speaking about the incarnation of the Son, his death on the cross, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And it was the Father's love that caused him to send Jesus to this end. Please hear this. The Father sent him for us and our salvation because the Father loved us. And now in Christ... We are co-heirs with him of all things. We will sit in judgment even over the angels. Not in and of ourselves, in him. And this leads me straight into the, really the application of this, which is our second point. The son graciously condescended and purchased salvation for you. The Father in love sent the Son for you, and the Son graciously condescended and purchased salvation for you. Why did the Son become incarnate? To graciously purchase salvation for you. Look again at Hebrews 1.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, how do we see him? Through faith. Through faith. Now, through faith, one day, face to face. But through faith, we see him. Now, his witnesses, those who testified to him, saw him resurrected, crucified, etc., we see him through faith. We see him now for a little while, who was, made, or who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now look what it says. So that by the grace of God, 
he might taste death for everyone. The son became man to suffer death. The grace of God caused the son to taste death for all his people. Do you you hear that, Christian? Christmas always anticipates Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and Pentecost. Always. The incarnation always intended the cross and resurrection and ascension and pouring out of the Spirit. Always. Why? Why? Why do we need that work by Jesus? Please hear me. God created us. We sinned against him. And our sin merited death. Not just physical death, which we all see coming, but eternal spiritual damnation. Eternal spiritual damnation. At the resurrection, when you were resurrected bodily, eternal physical and spiritual damnation. Our sin merited that. You might say, and I've heard it a lot of times, yeah, I've sinned, I've rebelled against God, but, but my sin is not so bad that I deserve hell. I mean, I've done a lot of good things too. By the way, at, at the bench of justice, try that out sometime. Stand before a judge. Yes, I murdered that person, but I let all the other ones live. Right? Nope, you're still, you're still gonna pay. Yes, I violated your commandments, but a lot of times I didn't. The problem with our thinking about our sin not being so bad that it deserves hell is that we merely, it just, I would say this, it betrays the fact that you do not recognize the infinite worth of the one against, uh, whom you sinned against. You don't recognize his worth. You think of your sin just at this kind of horizontal level. You don't recognize it's against this great God and thus deserving of this great punishment. Your sin is rebellion against the Lord. But even in the face of your rebellion, the Father, out of his great love, sent his Son to purchase grace for you. The Son of God became man to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath for your sin in your place. He became man to pay the penalty of death you deserve. He did that to save you. So the question really is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Are you looking to Jesus in faith? Are you resting on his work for you and receiving his grace to you? Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for your salvation? If you have, you are saved. You're a new creation. You now live in the world to come. That's your present possession. Death no longer has a hold on you. You've been born again. You have eternal life as a present possession. Now that doesn't mean that everything is now fully as it 
will be. Until the return of Christ, sin and death remain in this present world. But it does mean we live with the earnest expectation that Jesus will return and consummate the kingdom. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it. It's true. We don't at present see it. But when he returns, he will put all his enemies under his feet, and the last last enemy to be destroyed is death. So in Christ, we hope and rejoice. In Christ, we know the Father cares for us. When we hear these things, we can only respond this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace to us, for your love for us, unmerited, unearned, abundant, overflowing love and grace that was shown in your Son and His incarnation and death, resurrection, ascension and pouring out of the Spirit for us and our salvation. Pray for those who aren't looking to Jesus in faith that they would trust Him and be saved. We pray for those of us who are that we would be ever more in awe that you're mindful of us because of Christ, that you care for us in him. Amen. Let's sing. I was an orphan lost at the fall Running away when I'd hear your call 
Righteousness of my own. I had no right to draw near your throne. Father, you love me still. And in love before you laid the world's foundation, you predestined to adopt me as your You have raised me up so high 